Good evening. It's Trina Green with Parenting for Liberation. I'm here with Cecilia Caballero. She is an incredible activist mother who is co-parenting her six-year-old son, Alonzo. She and her son have been organizing and involved in the works in Boyle Heights. She has organized mothers of color. She sees these spaces as collective acts of feminist of color resistance and power. Welcome, Cecilia. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight. Thank you so much, Trina. I'm really excited to have this discussion. I'll just be transparent with the folks who are listening. We are recording this at 9.30 at night. Um, both of our boys, baby boys, are falling asleep. They're, probably, they're laying next to each of us in our respective homes, um, and this is when we have space to do it. So it is, it is our schedules as mothers is very jam-packed. So just like you create spaces um, in your reading clubs, I want to know more about the spaces that you create because Parents for Liberation is intended to be a space for parents to, to connect, to process everything that's going on in terms of the state violence that's happening, in terms of racism, the institutional oppression, and just all the multiple barriers that are coming up against us as we raise our children. Can you tell me a little bit more about those spaces? Um, so the reading groups came out of my um, PhD program. So right now I'm in the dissertation stage and dissertation writing stage. And so at this point, I'm, I'm about to begin my sixth year in the PhD program. And, it, and I'm doing a program in American studies and ethnicity. So, you know, all of my coursework, you know, we center an analysis of race and ethnicity and uh, social justice and things like that. But at the same time, I struggled a lot with with being in a space like that, which is actually pretty elite. And I had a lot of trouble, or I still have a lot of trouble, like reconciling what I was learning in such a privileged space. And at the same time, still dealing with the, the questions that I was reading about, that it was still impacting my family and my parents and even myself as um, a mother. I felt isolated. I felt um, that no one really understood me, especially because in the PhD program, um, the other graduate students, there's only one other woman of color who has kids and everyone else does not have children. So the reading groups are kind of a way to create a space outside of an institution or academic space. So one of the groups is for mothers to connect more with mothers of color uh, and who are not, you know, currently PhD students or in that space. And then the other group is just the one with women of color literature. Um, but I feel it's really important to have these spaces, especially as mothers and as women of color, we're not afforded the time or the energy to even have spaces like this because our schedules are already so jam-packed. But I do believe in the collective power that we all have to come into um, spaces like this that are outside of, you know, more formal structures that could kind of be um, exclusive. Totally resonates. I went to UCLA. It's in Los Angeles. I mean, USC is in South LA. And although you're surrounded by a community of color, that's not who's actually represented on campus. And although you're literally sitting in a community of color, you can feel so isolated on that campus. So I hear you are creating spaces where you can feel seen and heard and be amongst like-minded people 
and see yourself reflected in the folks that you're with in, and creating spaces because they don't exist on the campus is what I'm imagining, or at least that's been my experience. And so similarly, like that kind of was one of the, um, the impetus for Parents of Liberation is like actually not seeing a lot of spaces for folks who are raising black children and for black parents. Um, we did talk briefly about Chicano mother work. So if you can give us a little bit more information about that collective that you're a part of. Yeah, so I'm part of um, a, a collective um, of called Chicana Mother Work. So um, it's myself and four other moms who self-identify as uh, Chicanas, and we're all in PhDs. We started organizing in 2014, and we submitted to a conference called the American Studies Association, the annual conference in academics for American studies and ethnic studies. This is kind of the conference that everyone goes to. And my friend Yvette and I, we reached out to Michelle Teyes because in 2014 there was a an article that Michelle Teyes recently published and it was making the round, it was like going viral on Facebook at the time. And the title was about being um, a single Chicana mother in the academy. And I remember when I saw the title of that, I had never seen anything ever about a single Chicana mom in academia or, you know, in a PhD. So um, I immediately read her her entire uh, article. And um, she talked about being a single mom and living away from her family. And so her story pretty much paralleled with mine because I had a similar past. And um, so we asked Michelle if she would chair our panel on Mothers of Color in Academia, and she did. So then ever since we're working on a collaborative article, we're working on um, an interview with a journal right now. Um, we are we have a couple of podcast episodes um, called Chicana Motherwork, and we're getting ready for the relaunch, which will be next month. Um, and we're really we made that space or the reason we made the panel in 2014 is because um there's very few uh women of color who have children in graduate school or phd programs and it's something that um we've all experienced various degrees of like microaggressions or you know even overt hostility from colleagues uh, faculty, mentors, um, so we've all had some really horrible experiences and we we felt silenced, we felt we, we've been shamed, um, so not only on the interpersonal level but also on the structural level where, you know, there is no, there's very few, there's just not even any resources or support at the institution, child care, reimbursements, or even the structure of academia where, you know, it's like an unspoken expectation that you're supposed to do like free labor, but then it like, it doesn't line up with, you know, child care hours, school hours, evening hours. Like we definitely feel like we're not, you know, quote unquote, the traditional student because we have kids. And that's why um, we really felt that it was important to kind of come together as a collective and, you know, try to call attention to some of these things and, you know, hopefully over time make policy changes, you know, hopefully, but then also even trying to change academic culture, which is very hostile to um, graduate students with children. I mean, institutional and systemic oppression, patriarchy, misogyny, and just 
lack of support for women and children and folks with families seems like it's not only at USC. It's all over. It's kind of spread out through multiple schools and universities. I know that there's a group at UCLA that's doing similar work. One of the most recent campaigns that they were working on was about breastfeeding on campus and the lack of support for mothers who are breastfeeding and don't want to have to go like pump or feed their child in a bathroom stall. Oh yeah, it's actually two of our members are, they're also part of that. Appreciate the work that y'all are doing to raise awareness of that happening on campus. And so folks can check out Chicana Mother Work. And so excited for the launch and the relaunch of the, of the podcast and looking forward to the collaboration between Parents in for Liberation and Chicana Mother Work. And so in terms of Parents of Liberation, the intended audience and purpose is really for black parents. And I know that when you reached out, I was like, oh, do any folks identify as Afro-Chicano, Afro-Latina? And you said you do. And so we were chatting a little bit about, like, well, what is, how does that show up and what are the impacts of colorism and anti-blackness in Chicana-Chicano communities? Because I know that that's like an ongoing discussion that folks um, are interested in. So wanted to chat with you about that. Yeah, so I think um, for me personally, I do identify um, as Chicana, but also as Afro-Chicana. And I think um, that's only something, so in terms of my identity, that's something that I've just more recently been um, identifying or naming or calling myself. And I think a a lot of that is really rooted in a kind of anti-blackness that has been internalized even from my own family. So even my father, so I have my dad's skin color, so I'm pretty dark skinned. And um, I have, you know, my curly hair, I get it from my dad. I have um, uncles, like my tios, who have... um, not only curly hair, but some of them have like kinky, a kinky texture kind of hair and um, even, you know, like facial features, like phenotype. Um, So even though we, my dad's side of the family has this, I mean, it's clearly, you know, African ancestry. It's so much of a, it's just a denial. Like even my own dad told me things like, you know, don't date black men, um, you know, they're bad, they're gonna, you know, and when I was a kid, he would tell me all these things, and like, you know, black people will, you know, rob us, and they're just, they're bad, and um, he would tell me, um, you know, and and th- these are things that I internalized, and, um, and he, he would make comments about, like, skin color, even though his skin is as dark as mine, and, um so I think, you know, so I identified as Mexican and Chicana, and it wasn't until more recently that um, I started using the term um, Afro-Chicana for myself. And I think it's important to, um, you know, our self-identity has a lot of political meaning and power and weight to it. And I think this is when we're talking about um, blackness and especially anti-blackness, in the Latino or Latinx community, um, it's really, really crucial because there's still a lot of work to be done, you know, even among my own family members, but also in the larger Latin, Latin, Latino, Latinx community. Um, so I definitely um, 
I definitely am still kind of working through, you know, my own identity or my own relationship with um, uh, blackness. And I'm at the point now where um, I am proud of my darker skin and my hair. Um, But, you know, it's more than that. It's, you know, how do I, how through my parenting, you know, how can I just try to dismantle this anti-blackness that, is in my family or even, you know, my community. So, um, so I'm definitely struggling with that. And I think a part of it too is also connected to, um, colorism and, um, and I think that's kind of one, one thing that I'm always hyper aware of just because I have such darker, or I have darker skin. So, I mean, um, there are other people who, you know, black people do have, some black people do have darker skin than me, but um, in the context of like um, the PhD program, um, the other Latinos in my department, they definitely have like pale skin, um, you know, even like very light skin or white skin. So, you know, when I'm standing next to them, I'm just very aware that we look nothing alike and it makes me wonder, well, you know, how, how does skin color play into um, everything? So, you know, there is definitely white passing privilege. There's definitely, um, you know, Latinos who have lighter skin definitely are afforded more privileges um, because there's very few dark-skinned Latinos, you know, in these spaces of, like, higher education, which shouldn't be the case. But, um, so I guess all that's to say that um, I'm still trying to to um, really work through all of these things. So, um, so that's kind of where I am right now. But um, I think, you know, especially, or, you know, especially with the increased police violence that's happening, kind of just more of a sense of urgency of how do we dismantle all of these things? And, you know, and the thing that's been on my mind is the connection of colorism to um, anti-blackness. So that's kind of where I am right now. Thank you so much for sharing that, um, your personal journey and shifts and pivots and transitions that you're making in terms of your own self-identification as Afro-Latina, Afro-Chicana, and some of the struggles that exist. And, you know, you're not alone, right? Anti-Blackness exists also in Black communities, African-American communities. Um, I think you and I were chatting about, we were talking about um, colorism, and you were saying that, you know, just like you just said, you were saying that you've been in places with folks who are African-American, folks who are Latina, folks who are Chicano, and you're at times the darker skinned folk and the person in the room. And I was, I think I was sharing back and reflecting back that, and as an African-American person that sometimes I'm the only African-American person in the room that I have such fair skin, but that my lighter skin privilege allows me access. And I often wonder um, if I did have darker skin, would I be allowed access and be at the table? Um, and is my lighter skin more palatable for folks, for white folks or white institutions? And so, you know, those are some of the questions that we wrestle with. And I think even within 
our community, we wrestle with them. In terms of my family, we've had wrestlings around, you know, just some of the names that we call each other, some of the jokes that we say about each other. It's just internalized anti-blackness, right? We internalize our own sense of inferiority, or if we have lighter skin privilege, we internalize sometimes our own sense of superiority because we're closer to whiteness. And that that is the work that we're doing. That's the, that, that's the reason why I'm doing this work is because it really is about dismantling anti-blackness and not only for like white folks to not be anti-black, but also like how do we stop internalizing these messages of whiteness as perfection or whiteness as beauty. And I think it's a struggle. It's a, it's an ongoing struggle. And when I think about how it's impacting my parenting, my son, you know, it has darker skin than me. And he told me that I was white. And when I told him like, no, I'm black, I'm black like you. He's like, no, you're not, you're not black. And he, and actually he told me that he's not black. He's brown because mm. he does, his skin's not black, his skin is brown, right? And so mm-hmm. just in terms of wanting to be distancing self from blackness um, and working to have a sense of pride in terms of um, black is beautiful and um, to love yourself for who you are and, and like teaching him his history, teaching him about his ancestors, teaching him about his lineage. And just like a week ago, I was in Kentucky for a family reunion with some of my family in Kentucky that I he's never met and I hadn't been in Kentucky since I was like one years old and so we were there and we went to the Underground Railroad Museum and while there learning about runaway slaves and how they got their way to freedom and how Kentucky was a played a pivotal role because it was a it was the state on the border of uh it was a slave state at the border of a non-slave state or a free state um, in Ohio. And so, you know, I'm in this museum with this six-year-old black boy, and predominantly most of the patrons are white. Um, Ironically, when I told my family members who lived there that I wanted to go, some of them were like, oh, that's for white folks, right? Like, we don't go to the Underground Railroad Museum. It's really for white folks to learn about their history. And I was like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And when I got there, (laughs) I understood what he was saying. He was, you know, I understood what they were saying because when I got there, most of the patrons predominantly were, were white folks. Um, there were a couple of um, African-American families and families of color, um, but just like a sprinkle, right? And while there, um, you know, talking to my son about what this means and, you know, just trying to like, it's a intimate moment because it's presenting information to him that he might not have any understanding of or this might be the first time that he's talking about like, well, what is slavery and what are these chains for? And why did they do that? And who did that to us? White people did that to us. Why did they do that? Did they do that to me? You know, these are some of the questions that he's, he's wrestling with trying to make, get some understanding of it. And so while we're there, you know, we're having these moments, these learning moments. And there was a story of a slave man who had himself shipped in a cargo box to a free state, right? That was his, that was his way of escaping slavery was to, place his body in a cargo box and actually get it mailed for days and months inside of a cargo box because there was no like airplane delivery. It wasn't shipped FedEx, right? It was like on buggies and horse buggies and it took him a long time to get his box to freedom. And I was trying to explain to Terrence like why that was such a difficult journey because imagine you're stuck in this box. Do you have access to food? Do you have access to liquids? Where do you go to the restroom? You have to be ultra still, very quiet, because if anybody catches you, you could be killed, 
right? And so I'm explaining this to him, and while he's there, um, in the display, there is a cargo box that's the same size, kind of like a replica for folks to get an idea, a visual idea of the box and, like, the experience. And so Terrence, like, as a kid would do, was like, I can fit in that box. I could do it, right? He's the, like, I can do it, can do attitude. And I'm trying to explain to him the significance of that. And while he's there, this white patron interrupts and tries to explain to my son over me she tries to explain to him, oh, um, oh, he had to get in that box to be shipped to Freedom, and he mailed himself. And, like, I'm like, excuse me, I, you know, all right, thanks for the information, and I got this, right? I'm talking to my son. And then so he's in the box, and we're talking, and um, she says, she grabs her camera. She's already, like, ready, cocked and loaded with her camera. She's like, can I take a photo of you in the box? So, again, she's not talking to me. As his mother, she's talking directly to him, and my son, being polite, is like, yes, you can take my picture. And I'm like, no, she cannot. Mm-hmm. And I turn to her and I oh say, no, you cannot. And then she goes, oh, uh, okay, I'm sorry. And, like, she backs away. And I don't know what narrative she had in her head. I'm assuming she probably had some, like, angry black woman narrative in her head. I don't know. And And so then my son, who's like, you know, we have these discussions, mom, why did you say no? Isn't that kind of rude? Like she was being polite. She acts nicely. Why didn't you let her take a picture? You always take pictures of me all the time. And so now I have to explain to my son why she cannot take a picture of him in this box because I do not need anyone, a white woman particularly, to be walking around with an image of my son uh, memorializing slavery through his body. I don't need his body Mm -hmm. on display for other people to be like, this is what it was like during slavery, right? I don't need my son. Um, He is not a part of this exhibit. He is not for for your entertainment. He is not for your own awakening. His body is not to be disposable or used for your own purposes. And so I tried to explain that to him, right, to a a six-year-old. And I also tried to explain to him that Slavery is serious, and it's a real thing, and I don't want anybody to sentimentalize it or sensationalize it or minimize it in that way, right? This is a museum. This is about learning. This is not about recreating history through my son's body in this box. He's not a slave. He is free. And so I don't know. Like, so I told you that whole story just to be like it is a journey to explain blackness to him. Um, to explain why that was problematic um, as a person with white skin and he's a black boy, like why that is demeaning, at least in my perspective. And so just like trying to explain that to him in a way that, you know, a six-year-old gets it. And But like those are some of the experiences that I'm like wrestling with as I parent from a place of liberation and having him understand the whole context of what it means to be free now. And what what our ancestors and his ancestors had to do to make to allow him to be where he is today and to be free and also to still be dealing with multiple issues in terms of state violence and those things. And and so it's like we are free and there's still more work to be done so that we can be fully liberated. And so that's part of the work for parents and for liberation. Yeah, I mean, I I think that was just a really powerful moment that you had in the museum with your son that kind of like how you described the museum or how your family told you there that like they already knew that this museum 
was catered to white people and that this white woman felt entitled to ask your son for this photo, you know, not even or you know, asking you or acknowledging you for that permission. But um and it was just a taking you know, you're you're taking your power back and your son's power back. And through this you're modeling for your son, even though like as you said, he still had questions about it, but um, through modeling, you're showing him what it means to be liberated. There is a lot of work to be done, but you can interrupt these moments or disrupt them, and that could look like many different things. Yeah, thinking about sons and dismantling or resisting your baby boy had you write down and transcribe a powerful piece that he wrote on Facebook. Do you want to share um, that experience or that story of Alonzo and the poem or the letter that he wrote um, in response to the murder of a young boy down the street from your home? Yes. Last week there was um, a 14-year-old Latino boy um, from the neighborhood where I live in in L.A., on the east side of LA called Boyle Heights. Um, he was tagging and um, someone called the police to report the graffiti or tagging activity. And when the police came, they, uh, he ran. And so, the, so he, he's 14 years old. His, his name was Jesse Romero. And, um, and there's conflicting witnesses reports of one witness said that he shot a gun at the police and another witness says that he threw a gun against the sidewalk and it accidentally went off because then he looked startled and then he turned around and um and but what ended up happening is that he was shot and killed on the street and this happened just literally down the street from where I live and to have like police violence or state violence literally come to so close to my door like almost on my doorstep where you know a 14 year old was shot in the back and killed and murdered over graffiti essentially and so I was just having a really hard time and I was talking with my son and kind of asking you know trying to have a discussion and and this was the same day that Jesse was murdered and um, my son asked me to uh, write down his thoughts and he wanted he asked me to send it to the police I opened a Google Doc and I wrote down exactly what he said so he said no more cops we don't need you we need to talk to you stop arresting stop killing stop shooting you need to apologize drop your weapons to the trash never kill people again we need to destroy the police station and make it something else, whatever we want, like a space center, dinosaur center, science potions. They cannot keep their station. Police, never do that again. And, you know, it was, you know, I was trying not to cry when he was saying these things because his imagination, it's just the solution can be so simple and yet we still have to organize and fight for even just the basic rights that we deserve such as like you know we need to talk to you and you need to apologize and of course that doesn't happen 
we don't even get afforded that from the police state or police statements or anything. So, um, so I was really proud of him and also kind of just amazed and inspired that he was able to articulate all of these things. Yeah, I was really, when I saw that online, I was just like, wow, from the mouth of babes, the truth telling and the clarity that this six-year-old has about what is needed and what is not needed, which just amazes me, right? When I talk about the world that we want to create and I talk about the vision for the future, the best way that I believe we can see the vision for the future is through the eyes of children because they're not tied to any of the ways that they that it currently is, right? They have no stake in what currently is because they did not create it or they don't have the investment in it. And so they are okay with saying, we don't need police stations anymore. We don't need them. Throw your guns in the trash. There's no sense of investment in those ways, right? And that the new pathways are so clear to children. So just kudos to you. And I think that could potentially be a tip coming out of this this call that I might try and maybe other parents might try is when we have discussions with our kids, some of them aren't of age to like just write it out, but if they could write a letter in response to some of this stuff, what would they say? If they could say what they would want instead of the violence, what would they say? When you're sitting there trying to figure out what's the vision or the purpose or the strategy moving forward, maybe we should talk to kids. What do they think we need? So I'm going to try that, and I recommend that as a tip to other parents who are doing social justice work. If you ever feel a loss for what is possible in the future, just turn to your children. Yeah, I w- that that was actually the first time that um, I did it, actually, because he asked me to write it down, which I think that would could, that could be a strategy, as you mentioned, um, that could be really um, generative. I mean, when I read that, I was like, wow, there we go, boom. Write it up, put it out there. I was like, mail that to them ASAP. <laughs> yeah, and like I got pushback on this thread from two people who disagreed with what my son wrote. Um, one of them is um, a white woman who's a teacher, and she teaches second graders. So I was actually really upset that she just didn't like disagreed or just didn't get the point and um and she was kind of like oh my heart breaks that he believes this is true and you know does he really believe we need a world without law and order you know something like that and the other person who responded was uh she's also she's from east la she's a mom you know chicana she also has a son seven-year-old boy and she just kept she kind of jumped in the comments and kept reiterating that he had a gun or the boy who was murdered, that he had a gun and he was a danger to everyone and her son would never be in a target and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And, um, and I did engage with her more or I tried to, and then I just like lost patience. <laughs> and, um, but Trina, um, she, uh, she wrote this really wonderful comment and, um, and you know, that kind of just, and in the end, I just ended up unfriending this person because it just, I didn't want to deal with it because she just kept going back to the same point that he had a gun and she clearly didn't engage with the other things that we were saying um, as if that 
you know, supersedes everything else of like all of our social context and police violence and everything. But, um, but it made me think that, you know, how do we do this work in our communities and in our families, even when we don't agree with them? So, you know, even like my own dad, who's still, even I, as I've grown older and kind of realized, you know, was able to like, I was exposed to concepts like, you know, anti-blackness and white supremacy. And these are things that my dad didn't have access to, you know, because he doesn't speak English and, you know, he, he only has a, like a third grade education from Mexico. And so I guess that the aftermath of kind of, you know, Alan comment made me think of, you know, how do we kind of, how do we deal with these conflicts or disagreements even with our communities and that's what matters the most, right? But how do we go about it? And I don't know, I'm just having, I guess I'm, I, I'm having a hard time with that. Yeah. I mean, I agree, right? So there's a couple of things um, that you just raised. We pick and choose our battles, especially on social media. There's so many folks who critique and have comments that sometimes aren't necessarily worth your energy. So, you know, you chose to not engage necessarily one person, um, but you did want to engage with someone that you saw as a peer, as a fellow community member, as another mother to a boy of color, to a Chicano boy. And so just wanting to invest in that conversation because it felt important. And I was there to be able to read the comments. And, um, and I think there's something to, again, internalize oppression, internalize self-hate, um, and also when it comes to state violence against black and brown bodies, what people tend to do is blame the victim. There are brown and black folks who are like, well, what was that the victim of state violence doing? Because I'll never do that. By blaming the victim and trying to figure out and make sense of the violence, we try to go, well, what were they doing that was wrong so that I can make sure I don't do that so I'll be safe so that won't happen to me. And the reality of it is, is that there's nothing that can actually save us from state violence or institutional racism, right? Like, no matter how many college degrees I have, no matter how fair-skinned I am, no matter how big my bank account, no matter what fancy car I drive, no matter what gated community I live in, that my black body makes me susceptible and a suspect and a potential victim at any time. Even if before I walk out my house, even as I'm sitting in my house, right, I could be sitting in this house with my baby right now, and I could be a victim of state violence, just like Corinne Gaines, for the simple fact that I am black in this country. And so there's nothing that I can do that can make me safe, right? And so I think there's something to wanting to find ways of protecting ourselves so that we can feel safe, but it's all just a false sense of safety, until we eradicate, eliminate, and crush these systems and institutions of oppression and racism and anti-blackness in our culture. Um, and mm -hmm. that, that we have a lot of work to do in our communities until we realize that there's nothing that that person did differently and that there's no reason that that person is to blame for their own mm -hmm. murder. Especially a 14-year-old. Right. Yeah. Especially when folks like... Dylan Roof can be walked out with the bulletproof vest on, and he obviously did the crime, right? Um, mm -hmm. There's nothing that that 14-year-old boy could have done that they couldn't have not walked him away in handcuffs alive 
So, yeah, we got a lot of work to do in our community. I was at a, a convening and with Alicia Garza, co-founder of Black Lives Matter, and she said that the real challenge and test of your ability to organize is working with your own people, is organizing your own family and organizing your own community. And I was like, wow, it was so true. Because like the week before that, I was, you know, I was going back and forth with someone that I love and have relationship with and need to continue relationship with. And we wrestled like we had a real disagreement and I couldn't just discard him, right? I couldn't just delete him off Facebook. I got to stick in it with him. And like those are the relationships and those are the conversations that are the hardest ones that we actually have to stick in it with. Because when we create this future that's liberated, we can't leave our people behind, right? They got to be there with us. And so we all got to get woke together. Yeah, I struggle with that um, a lot. Like, what are the actual strategies that we can take with, um, yeah, like our family, a community member, right? And, like, I want to have more strategies, but at the same time, like, having boundaries or limits. And I think, um, like, for example, my family like so, my uh, my my parents live in the uh, in Northern California. So, and I'm here in LA. So, um, I only go back a couple times a year with my son. And you know, I don't think about my, you know, my dad's kind of uh, like, you know, anti-black comments or like racism because I'm not there daily with them. But then when I come back, or you know, then I see his some of his other kind of behavior that I don't agree with or even my older brother, um, who kind of like, he's also internalized the the racism and like anti-blackness that my father taught us. And um, so then he'll say comments, you know, and I'm just like, no, this is not okay. I don't want my son to hear these things. I don't want him to think that it's okay. So I feel like like either just distancing myself or trying to engage more to do more of that work. But then it's just it's really hard. I get really angry and upset. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it kind of made me think of, oh, so I went to, um, there's, um, there's a feminist group here in LA called um, the Affirm. So it's like a transnational women of color feminist organization. And they had they hosted a really good event of brown people for black power. So a similar kind of question of how to dismantle anti-blackness in our communities. I think the, the event itself, it was really good. Um, at the same time is that most of the people who were there came from, you know, various social justice organizations throughout LA, which was, um, which was great because I previously hadn't heard of a lot of these organizations. So it was good just to uh, kind of plug into these different uh, networks and make connections. But at the same time, like, you know, everyone who came to that space were familiar with terms like, you know, white supremacy or like the police state and mass incarceration, you know, so, um, but then I was thinking like, but how do we do that work with our family members who have, you know, don't have access to education or, or these spaces? How do we do that work with them? Or how do we explain these concepts? So I, I, and I think that's especially important with like in terms of parenting, because my instinct is just to kind of like close off because it really upsets me. Yeah. 
and probably to protect your your baby, right? Like it's a maternal instinct to be protective and not wanting your child to witness or hear, you know, negativity, anti-blackness, um, especially from his, like, grandfather and his uncle, right? Because then you don't want him to begin to imitate or mimic that behavior, right? I think that it, there are choices, and we have to make choices, and that it's not like a one or the other, or it's a cut or dry decision or a black and white decision, that we have choices um, in terms of what we need to do to to make sure that we feel safe and whole and well and that we aren't necessarily triggered and how that shows up in the way that we parent too and that we continue to figure that out in ebbs and flows and how we figure out engagement in terms of the personal relationship. But I do hear a very particular question that I think maybe we can spend some time together exploring and with other folks from a firm or other collectives around how do we have conversations about anti-blackness in our families? I don't know if you saw the APIs for Black Lives, the letters that they wrote to their oh, family. Yeah. So that, and then they like made a video version or folks could read it to their families. I think that was one particular way. But I think I hear your question about beyond being allies, right? Beyond just engaging the same social justice folks who already know it, right? How do we engage our personal communities and take it home? Maybe that's something that we can explore together. This is about parenting, right? And a part of parenting is like, how do you build a community around your child that is also, that's in alignment, right? Like, how do I make sure that when I talk to my son about blackness, that when he goes to see his grandparents, that they're not having some self-internalized hate conversations with him about light skin is better skin, right? Like, I don't want that happening. Um, Mm -hmm. And so... And so I think there is something to parenting is really about how do you build the village around your child and that that's some of the work that we can do. So I'm down to talk about it. I'm down to figure it out. Parenting for Liberation is about trying new things, new strategies that are from a place of hope, liberation, and trying to be different with our children and in our family. So I'm totally down to try anything. We can explore together and we can learn from other people. Learning and sharing space. Yeah, I definitely am excited about about that um sharing and being generous with each other um because i feel like i still make a lot of mistakes too (laughs) i'm like i'm trying Um, like (laughs) i hope to be able to continue to have conversations with you and that we'll do this exchanging and learning together and trying and not doing it right and things not working out and maybe making some hiccups or mistakes and then trying again something new. Um, so I'm excited to be on this journey with you and other mothers who are wanting to build um, liberation in their homes and in the world. Um, and so I look forward to continue to connecting with you in community and sisterhood and motherhood together. Yes, I'm excited to um, to have you over for dinner. <laughs> so yeah. we'll record for the um, – for the Chicana Motherwork podcast next month. Yes, that's going to be so fun. Thank you so much. I want you to have a good night. Get some rest. Okay, sounds good. All right. Thanks. Good night. All right. Good night.